Well, do turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And for those who come here regularly, can I say this is the last time we'll look at 2 Samuel for a few weeks. I'm stopping here. This is a natural place to stop. There is a break in the book that uh, is very significant that we'll see when we return towards the end of August uh, to chapter 9. But I need, to, I need to deal with chapter 8 before you get your, your break because uh, this is, completes really this little section of the book. So there you are. What I'm going to be doing in the weeks in between is I'm going to be taking us to 1 Peter chapter 2 and to a section which uh, picks up many of the themes that have emerged while we've been studying the book of Samuel and applies them into a New Testament context. And uh, the title of that short series is, Don't You Just Love the Church? Question mark. And uh, so we'll be doing that in the mornings. And then in the evenings, uh, we're going to suspend Acts, which we've been doing in the evenings over July, August as well. And we're going to be looking at a nice easy book of the Bible called Ezekiel. and I don't, know what, I don't know what I was on the day that I said I would do a few studies from Ezekiel. Whatever it is, don't you take it because it's not good for you. Um, but we'll see what we can make of Ezekiel. I'm just doing bits of it, so that's always an easy way out. Okay, to Samuel chapter 8. And to, before we come to this chapter, what, what I want to tell you is a bit of a story. It's a true story. And, and I think it helps us to understand what is going on in this chapter because if you were listening to the reading of it you'll find that it's just a chapter about wars and fights and dead people and hamstrung horses and government officials and the booty of war and all of that stuff and you're asking yourself what on earth what on earth is he doing even I mean he could have come back at the end of at the end of August and preached on chapter 9 and we would have not remembered that he had forgotten to cover chapter 8. I mean there were points I have to tell you in the last couple of weeks where I was thinking that might be a strategy to adopt but I know that you would have noticed so here we are today. So let me tell you a story. It's a story about the very first car or should I say the very first vehicle, motor vehicle that my father bought while I was growing up. You understand this is a long, long, long time ago in a country very far away. And uh, my father had resisted buying any form of uh, motor vehicle because uh, he just felt that he didn't want to kind of, you know, know, compromise and, and conform. Everybody else had big fancy cars and he didn't want any of that. And uh, he, he decided... Uh, that we could all take public transport when we needed it or hire something if we needed any, anything specific. And that was his philosophy. And then he announced one day that he had bought a vehicle or, or at least that somebody, a friend of his, had given him a vehicle at a very low price. That was the first signal of a problem as far as I was concerned. And uh, it was with great anxiety that we awaited the day that he drove this vehicle home. And I remember when I saw it, they, he turned the corner. I was in the kitchen window, I think, talking to my mother, and I saw this, this vehicle turn the corner. I'd never seen anything like it in my entire life. And I, it waved as it was coming down the street. It was driven like this. This is my father's way of getting our attention and saying, this is me and this is it. And as it came closer 
and then pulled up in front of our house. My heart sank to my boots. My instinctive reaction was, please park it five blocks away. You have never seen anything like this vehicle in your life. It had begun life about 40 years earlier. And it had been begun life as a van with solid, you know, a, a van to deliver things, like a, a post office. In fact, I think it was a post office van to begin with, which had now been there red in Britain, and this had now been painted, spray painted badly, uh, a kind of off blue thing. And uh, not only that, but this van had had somebody take... Uh, the sides of the van out and replace the sides of the van with what looked like windows that had been on a boat. <laughs> they, they certainly did not belong on a motor vehicle, let me tell you that. They put windows at the side of it. And my father had, in his ingenuity, uh, got a hold of some used bus seats and anchored them with bolts to the floor at the back of this van. Actually, I think my father invented the minivan. I think that's what he would have done. <laughs> uh, that's my positive spin on what it was. This thing, this thing was so old, you had to crank the engine for it to start. It was, it was this is ancient. I mean, it, it was ancient then. That was a long time ago. It was ancient then. It would be today probably over 100 years old. I mean, it was a really old vehicle. It never worked properly. I remember we were going on vacation and this thing, you got it, you see, because they could put all these seats at the back. And nobody was doing that in those days. I mean, he was, he thought, being creative. And I remember going on vacation on one occasion and the whole thing broke down and she, he had to use my mother's nylons as a kind of belt to get the engine going with the fan. Creative or what? It, it, all kinds of things, stories went with this, this van, but I won't bore you with them this morning. Now, I'll tell you the story about that van because that van has absolutely virtually no connection whatsoever with what I drive today, or this sermon for, for that matter. <laughs> that's, that's another question, which if you hold on, you may see a connection in a moment. It has virtually no connection with what I drive today, except that it had an internal combustion engine. I mean, everything else, there is nothing. I mean, I, I drive a, a, an Amer today an American-made machine. Uh, I used to drive an Audi, which was a fine German machine in which everything worked perfectly. It had lots of... I'm, I'm not making any negative comment here. The only thing I would say about that van of my father's was that it was a Ford, which is why no one in our family will ever, ever ever buy a Ford. <laughs> it just never worked. It just never worked at all. Uh, and, and, uh, but there is no, virtually no connection between that vehicle and the vehicle I drive today, which has got all the toys on it and does all kinds of amazing things. And, and you press buttons and it starts remotely and it does all kinds of... Yeah, I got it because I like the toys. And uh, it, it also holds a, a lot of people, like my dad's did. But it, there is no connection. And the reason I tell the story is 
that we are reading a story this morning here about David's victories over his enemies and the appointment of his officers to govern the Israelite state. And there appears to be, on the surface, no connection between David's kingdom 3,000 years ago and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I want to say that there is as much connection between David's kingdom and the, car I, uh, and the car my father bought and the car that I drive today. In that there are the kind of superficial similarities. For example, I said the com internal combustion engine was in both of those cars. Both of those cars are designed to hold seven or eight people. So there's a relationship between my dad's car and my car. But everything else is different. Everything else is different. That was the most basic, the most basic, basic car imaginable. It was made up. It looked weird. I was embarrassed to go to church. I actually pled with him not to drive it to church on Sunday so that nobody would see us come out of that car. It was so embarrassing. Now, when you look at the kingdom of David here, I think there are some of us, when we read the story, we're a bit embarrassed about what's going on here. There's blood and gore. There's war and violence. There's lining up prisoners and killing uh, two-thirds of them. And there's hamstringing horses. And we think, what possible relationship is there between David's day and Jesus' day? And the answer is, the connection, the internal combustion engine that is typical of both of them is this. That in David's day, his kingdom was the expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And in our day, the church is the expression, the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And when Jesus Christ returns again in glory and there's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, there the kingdom of God on earth will be expressed absolutely, perfectly, fully, finally, completely, and without any embarrassment for any of us. So there's a connection but there's a disconnection, and I want us to keep those things in mind as we come to study the chapter today. Because this chapter is, in fact, uh, the key to this chapter is repeated twice in the section. You'll see uh, one in verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. In other words, this is an expression of the victory of God through David over all of his enemies. Here in this primitive kingdom, uh, which is uh, basic, preparatory, temporary, we see elements that are true for all time whenever we're describing the kingdom of God. Now, chapter 8 obviously follows chapter 7. Everything in chapter 8 doesn't necessarily follow the events of chapter 7, because chapter 8 is a summary of the whole of David's career as a military person. But in chapter 7, the writer's put it first because he wants us to learn that this chapter about the victories of David over his enemies is God's way of fulfilling his promises to David to, make him a, to give him a great name. See, read this in chapter 7. 
to appoint a place for my people Israel and to give rest from her enemies, to give Israel rest from her enemies. We've already seen David's name is getting great because God is going to make his throne an eternal throne. Secondly, we've already seen in chapter 6, Jerusalem is captured and is established as the headquarters of David and the city of God and the place, of course, where the Messiah will come, the place for my people Israel. And now we're going to see in chapter 8 how it was that God delivered peace and rest from their enemies to David and to Israel. And what we see here points us forward, points us forward, imperfectly, yes, imperfectly, yes, but points us forward to what the kingdom of God looks like under Jesus, now and in the future. Well, I want to treat the passage with four headings, four headings this morning. Here is God's king on God's throne. Here is God's king spreading God's kingdom. Here is God's king stewarding God's resources. And here is God's king shepherding God's people. Let's walk through those together. First of all, here is God's king sitting on God's throne. That's why chapter 8 follows chapter 7. Because what God has done for David is, he has taken him out of all of humanity and he said, here is a man whose name will be forever associated with the throne of God in heaven. So that we can sing as we have just done and as we will do in our closing hymn, that the throne of God can also be described in the Bible as the throne of David. When our Lord Jesus is raised from the dead and He ascends into heaven and He sits down by the right hand of the majesty on high, we're told that He sat down on the throne of His Father, David. God associates His name and David's name in this amazing way. And in chapter 7, we saw David sitting on His throne. God appoints him. To be a number of things, he gives him an official title. You are the Son of God. You are the Servant of the Lord. You are the Anointed, slash the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Anointed One of God. You are the King of Israel. All of those titles, which ultimately belong to King Jesus, were given first to David. David, who combines in himself the office of a king and a prophet and a priest, David combines all these things in himself. We're going to see that he's not a perfect man. We're going to see that in many ways he becomes a failure. But at this stage in his life, God has appointed him as a forerunner of the Messiah himself. It's an amazing story. God's king seated on God's throne. Secondly, he is God's king extending God's kingdom. In chapter 7, God promised that he would do all these good things for David. David reflects on it at the end of the chapter from verse 18 that God is going to answer all of these or going to keep all of these promises that he's made. And here in chapter 8, we see God do just that. And what he's doing in chapter 8 is he's fulfilling a promise not just to David, but he's fulfilling a promise that he made way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 12 and 17. He made the promise to Abraham. He took Abraham out one night, you remember, and he showed him the stars. 
And he said, Abraham, you see the, can you count the stars in the sky? Well, of course you can't count the stars in the sky. So many will your children be. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 17. God comes to Abraham again. He's made a covenant with Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to look as far as the eye can see. I want you to look at the land of Canaan. Look north, south, east, west. Look at all this great land. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. They're going to possess it. They're going to own it. They're going to reign over it. And a thousand years after Abraham, in the reign of David, God's promise of inheritance of this great land was given to David. And in the reign of David, all of the land that God had promised to Israel was overpowered, was won over, and was possessed by King David for the sake of Israel. God kept His promise to Abraham. When you read about this promise being fulfilled this morning, I want you to, to try and picture it in your mind. Here we have the description, here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He goes west, defeats the Philistines. He goes east, and he defeats the Moabites. He goes south and defeats the Edomites. He goes north and then northeast and defeats the Syrian armies there. The whole of the land is captured and conquered by David as a fulfillment of God's word. Because God kept His Word to David, you see, the application for you and me is that God will keep all His promises to us. Here we are, we live 3,000 years after David. 4,000 years after Abraham. And if God keeps His promise to Abraham 1,000 years later to David, and if God keeps another promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants the whole world will be blessed, 2,000 years after that promise, Jesus is born. 4,000 years after that promise, we're seeing the gospel spread into all the, the world and men and women and boys and girls are able to say today that they have been blessed because of the promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And there's coming a day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ and all the enemies of God are subdued as they were under David in his day. And all the, the powers of darkness will be overthrown as they were uh, during the days of David in this small microcosm of the greater macrocosm of God's purposes for the world. There is coming a day, there is coming a day when God will introduce the final inheritance that He has promised to His people. And we will inherit the earth, we will inherit the world, we will inherit the cosmos. That's God's promise to you. That in resurrection bodies, you will live in a renewed planet, a renewed earth forever. The God who kept His promises then will keep His promise to you. You stand on the promises of God. But not only that, do you notice that this conquest, this conquest in which David wins all this, is impossible without conflict. That, that's what the, the passage is teaching. That these nations ultimately come under the sway of King David as a result of conflict. 
And I want to say that in the bigger Bible picture, the nations of this world, I'm afraid, are not lining up to come under the authority of King Jesus. There is no political system anywhere in the world where the people are ever going to vote Jesus Christ as their president. They're never going to vote Jesus Christ as their master or their leader or their CEO. They're never going to put Jesus Christ in the first place. The nations of this world are in rebellion against King Jesus. And so at the end of the story, if we can fast forward from David's time and fast forward from our time to the end of history, we discover that at the very end of the story, King Jesus is going to have to go into conflict and battle against his enemies. You can read about this in the story in Isaiah, where Isaiah describes this picture of conflict in Isaiah chapter 11. And he says this, that in those days when the stump of Jesse, the branch, emerges and the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him without measure, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked and righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Go to Revelation 19. The Lamb of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords comes riding on his white charger and he rides into battle against all of the enemies of God and he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. This is not feel-good Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. The end of the story will only come from conflict. And in the interim period, where you and I are, where the kingdom of God is coming secretly and silently into the hearts and minds of men and women, it does not come without conflict. Right now, the conflict the church engages in is not a conflict with weapons such as David used. We don't use spears and swords, nor machine guns or missiles. We use the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. But it's a battle nonetheless. And wherever God's people go into battle, it means life and death. Wherever the church gathers and the Word of God is preached, it means life and death. I understand as I come onto the pulpit week by week and open the Word of God and preach the Word of God to you that this very Word will be to some of you a message of life. I know that there are people here this morning, there's someone, perhaps you are sitting listening to my voice and God is going to speak to you today and as you listen to the good news message of the Gospel, as you hear the good news that God in Christ has done all that is necessary to put you right with Him. That He does not bring a list of rules and say to you, keep these and live. He says, I have done this. Believe it and live. That's the good news of the Gospel. And if you believe this, if you believe this today, it's life to you. Life to you. Now and forever. Life to you. But I'm conscious too of this. That as I have announced that good news... As briefly as I have done to you this morning, there are some who will reject it. And I want to say to you, the very words that are life are death to you. Eternal death to you. When the church is sent out into the world, Jesus appoints them as witnesses. Let me tell you, we are witnesses both for the prosecution and for the defense of the gospel. 
It is a more solemn thing to preach the Word of God. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says this, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. The Gospel does both. The Gospel opens a door to paradise. To those who believe, the Gospel closes the door to heaven for those who reject it. So we're in conflict too. And the church of Jesus Christ goes out into the world to battle with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and with prayer in order to establish the kingdom of God in hearts and minds and lives today. And just as David was successful, why? Because the Lord gave him victory. So we are successful today because the Lord gives us victory. The Lord is doing the work. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me tell you, he was not thinking of a defensive church. He was thinking of an offensive church. He was thinking of a church sent out to the gates of hell to break them down, to retrieve men and women from hell and bring them into the kingdom of God. And when he says, go and make disciples... He's saying, go out and make disciples of people whose hearts and minds have been given to somebody else and win them back, win them to me. And I'll be with you always. Our victories are not easy victories, but the church endures and the church goes on and the empires, they come and they go. They come and they go. You've seen all the fuss about the Queen's Jubilee. You've seen it on television, I'm sure. London was a buzz with it when we were there a few weeks back for a wedding. And, uh, but let me tell you that all of that stuff reflects a bygone day, a great empire as it once was, where the map was colored pink. Well, I have no idea why it was pink. It was colored pink to represent the British Empire that was spread across the world. It's gone today. It's gone today. The empire, the Reich that was to last a thousand years was left blooded and battered in the ruins of Berlin. The communist empire, the Soviet Union, does not exist today. Seventy years and God pressed the stop button and used Ronald Reagan to do it. All these empires come and go, but the kingdom of God remains and grows. And David's little kingdom shows us how it grows. One or two things, practical things from the passage. The hamstring of the horses. I don't know if you noticed in our psalm that we read today, David, let me just check that it's David. Yes, it is, old David. He wrote this psalm and he says this, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed he will answer him from his holy heaven with his saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He hamstrung the horses and sent them to do agricultural work rather than use them as the latest means of military conquest. He trusted the Lord 
not in horses. And then you have this man, Toy. Verse 9. Toy, the king of Hamath. You don't toy with Toy. He heard that David had defeated the whole army of... Okay, wasn't that funny? He heard that he had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, and Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him. Now, I want you to know that Toy has absolutely no interest in David's health. He doesn't really want to know, have you had a cold or, you know, the flu or a headache or a hangover or whatever it is. I mean, Toy is not interested in David's health. You know what he's doing? He's coming to King David and he's... He wants, to, he wants to do what you do when you've done something bad and your mom's, angry, your mom's angry at you and you come sneaking back in with your tail between your legs and you go, you know. The dog does that all the time, doesn't it? The dog does that. When it's done bad, it comes up and it kind of snuggles into you and it's kind of telling you, okay. Here's Toy coming to David and saying, I've seen you defeat all these other people. I don't want to be among them. I'm on your side. I'm on your side. And I think David picks up that theme in the psalm that we began with this morning where King David, put, using the words of the, that are in the, the lips of our Lord Jesus, is saying to his enemies, kiss the sun lest you be angry. Kiss the sun. Be reconciled to God. Submit to God. Pledge your allegiance. This week we're going to be celebrating the 4th of July and the creation of a nation, one nation, and uh, in doing that, as we rightly, as we rightly pledge our allegiance to the flag of the United States, let me remind you that we come to church Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, in order to express a higher allegiance to a greater power that rules over all the nations of men and to our own King, Jesus. Here is God's king spreading God's kingdom on the earth. Thirdly, here is God's king stewarding God's resources. Because he captures, do you notice, the wealth of the nations, shields made of silver and gold and bronze. Look at verse 10. He brings them into the house of God. Joram brought with them articles of silver and gold and bronze. Verse 11, he dedicated them all. From all the nations he subdued, he dedicated them. That is, he gave them over to God. This is God's wealth. This is God's doing. The cattle in a thousand hills belong to him. He's recognizing that all of this conquest, all of the expansion of the kingdom, comes from God and belongs to God. And he brings these things to God. And later on, these very things, this wealth, this incredible wealth that was brought to David during this period is going to be used by his successor, Solomon, to build the temple of God. And the temple of Solomon was a wonder of the world. It was encrusted with gold and silver and precious stones. It was, people came from all over the place. Everybody wanted to destroy the temple because they wanted the treasure that had been brought in David's time to the temple of God. All those resources belong to God. The wealth of the nations. And in this little vignette, in this little picture story, we see that this is the way it's going to be with the kingdom of Jesus. When it comes in all its fullness, we're told, 
Well, let me read to you from Isaiah 60. Lift up your eyes around and see all the nations gather to you. And they bring their abundance. They, they bring their young camels and they bring their gold and their frankincense. Remember, they brought them to Jesus as a baby. That was a foretaste of what will be at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. Foreigners shall build up your walls. Their kings shall minister to you. Your gates will be open continually. The wealth of the nations will be brought to you. Nations and kingdom will not, who do not serve you will perish. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, the pine shall beautify the place of your sanctuary. The wealth of the nations. You go to Revelation 21 and there you see the nations pouring into the city temple, the New Jerusalem. And they're bringing their wealth and their resources with them. And don't just think that in that new creation it's going to just be the gold and the silver and the treasure, but the, the art and the scientific uh, exploration, the results of scientific technology and so on, and, the, uh, and uh, all the products of man's creativity all brought together into that new Jerusalem, into that holy city. Everything that we've been working on, everything the world is working on, all, all the designs and the technological advances, all of that belongs to King Jesus. It's coming into the kingdom. You see, the saints will inherit the earth. Whenever you next see your latest iPhone, I've left mine, I should have brought it with me. I don't know what time it is. And I might have had some texts while I've been preaching that I could read to you. When you look at that technology, you think, all oh, this, I want you to think this, all this is ours. You look at the technological advances in the world, all this is ours. You look at the great cities of the world, their great architecture, architecture, all this is ours. It's our inheritance. The people who are living on this planet, they're living on borrowed time, and they're living on borrowed wealth that's coming to the people of God. The saints shall inherit the earth. And into that new Jerusalem, the wealth of the nations will be brought. Well, the last thing we see in this chapter is God's king shepherding God's people. Let me read it to you. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That is, there was no favoritism over all Israel, you notice. David came from one tribe, Judah. He did not show favoritism to Judah. He reigned over all Israel. He administered justice and equity to all his people. Here is a king. He wasn't perfect. We'll see that. It goes all pear-shaped after chapter 8. That's a little clue to what's coming. He wasn't perfect. But during his reign... It got as near to being perfect as it's ever going to be under a human king. He shepherded the people of God. He didn't just look at them as assets. He didn't just look at them as numbers, at least to begin with. 
He saw them as the sheep of God, the people of God who needed nourished and cared for. And he treated them with respect and dignity. He did not oppress them. He shepherded them in a way that points us forward to the great shepherd, Jesus, who says, I am the good shepherd slash king. This is the way that Jesus does it. He, he administers justice. And in the end, that's the way it's going to be. When, when the Lord Jesus comes back again, there's going to be justice in the world. As uh, Isaiah 60 says, there's coming a day when he will rule in righteousness and justice. Perfect transformation of the planet will be in the new Jerusalem, the new creation. And what about the meantime? What about right now? Well, Jesus rules his kingdom today with righteousness and justice. So when you read the story of the beginning of the earthly rule of Jesus today in the book of Acts, you discover that there were injustices in the early church. And the Holy Spirit guided the early church to deal with those injustices radically. That's why the diaconate was formed in the beginning. It was formed to deal with injustices within the church. It was formed to deal with those who were under pressure, for those who couldn't make it on their own, for those who needed a helping hand. The church looked after its own. So that in the first 300 years of its life, People in the Roman Empire that had no safety net. Nobody was caring for them. No one was looking after them. No one loved them. No one was their shepherd. They looked at the church. They saw the church looked after its own. And they said to each other, see how those Christians love one another. David ruled with equity and righteousness, an imperfect man. But he was a prototype of King Jesus who rules perfectly with equity and justice. Here we are this week. We live in a land that promises to people around the world liberty and justice for all. It's a great phrase. And I imagine that for many, if not most Americans, that is absolutely true. This is a land of liberty and justice. A lot of it's relevant uh, or, or, uh, to, 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 what, to what we've experienced. People who come here from other countries, even other democracies, are able to say in a measure when they come to the United States, they will just say absolutely, compared to where we came from, there is liberty, and justice for all. But this is not the new Jerusalem. There is no liberty and justice for the unborn Americans. They're sentenced to death. This is an imperfect country. And David's day was imperfect. Only under Jesus, in the new creation, will there be perfect justice and equity to all. So our hearts long for that day. Because in the microcosmic life of David, 
in this place far away and a long time ago, we see in a crude way how the kingdom of heaven came down to earth. How the will of the Father in heaven was done on earth as it is in heaven for a moment in David's life. Today that's handed over to us. We're waiting for the day when Jesus comes to enforce it. In the meantime, you and I who are Jesus' followers can show justice and equity to people we work for, people we work under, over. We can show justice and equity to those we meet in our daily lives. We can do it in the church to one another under the lordship of Jesus who is the shepherd of the sheep. This little picture of conflict and conquest at the end of the day points us to the new creation in the interim points us to the, the work of the church on earth and supremely points us to King Jesus. I want you to see him today. I want you to bow your knee to him, to his authority, to welcome him gladly into your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in David's time, despite the differences and the advances of your revelation and your will and the final model of it in Christ, we see the faint beginnings of the shape of the kingdom of God. And we live in between the times, Jesus come and Jesus coming, between his resurrection and his return. Many of us in this room have already experienced spiritual resurrection by becoming new people in Christ but we still wait that physical resurrection, those resurrection bodies that are designed to live forever in a renovated planet. We pray that you would help us to live in light of that coming, moment by moment and day by day, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.